As you remain standing, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can grab it and turn to the book of Exodus, the second book in God's Word as we continue our series of studies uh, through this great narrative of God's redemption. We come this morning to the second commandment in Exodus chapter 20, and just like we did last week with the first commandment, we just want to take one commandment uh, this Lord's Day and see what we can squeeze out of it for our life in Jesus Christ. So we're just going to look at verses 4 through 6 this morning. Let me read that text for us and pray for our time, and then we'll begin together. So let us hear God's word once again as he speaks to us. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, Or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do bow before you now, rejoicing that you speak to us by your word and spirit. Just as you spoke out of the fire and the smoke, the trembling mountain at Sinai, your covenant word to us, that we might keep it, that we might love you. Fill us, we pray, with your spirit, that he might write this law upon our hearts that we might observe it and keep it all our days. Help us to hear with significance and importance, knowing that we are dying people, never promised to hear another word from you. Help me to preach in the same way as a dying man never promised to preach another sermon. So let us hear with earnestness and eagerness that you might do great good to us, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the late 4th century AD, the bishop of Cyprus was a man named Epiphanius. And in 394, he wrote a letter to the bishop at Jerusalem, which is a man named John. And this letter is little more than a nine-paragraph apology for Epiphanius's recent actions. Some of that is an apology of sorrow. Uh, Other parts of it is an apology, like a defense of what he's done and what he's said recently. And the ninth paragraph is really the ninth point of his apology. And he says that John has no doubt heard of the recent grievance and disturbance that came through Epiphanius' recent visit to a nearby village. And this village was Anablatha, and Epiphanius had come there on a visit, and he came evidently late at night because he noticed that a light was burning in a building somewhere in the village, late enough that it was interesting him to go visit because he didn't know why a light would be burning at such a time. And so he came into that building, he came into that structure, and he realized it was a Christian church. But he says he noticed on the wall there was this rather large, dried and embroidered, or dyed and embroidered curtain. And on it, there was the image of Jesus Christ. And so here's where his apology, the defense of his actions, begins in his letter to John. He says, Being loath that an image of man should be hung in Christ's church, contrary to the teaching of the Scriptures, I tore it asunder and advised the custodians of the place to use it as a blanket for some poor person. 
And if you wonder where such zeal about a curtain hanging in a church might come from, oh, we see it in our text today. The second word spoken there at Sinai, a word that Christians throughout the ages have ordinarily related to a prohibition against worshiping God through images. Now, if you weren't with us last week, we began kind of a series within our broader series on Exodus as we analyzed these Ten Commandments one by one each week over the coming months. And we looked at the first word spoken there at Sinai, and it was simply the word, you shall have no other gods before me. So it was a word of totality. You don't get any other gods, but it's not just totality there. It's this kind of exclusivity, you know, no no other gods before me, which kids, you might remember what we said last week. That phrase might better be translated something like, you shall have another gods before my presence. And if your parents have trained you in the kids' catechism, you might know this simple answer, where is God? Well, God is everywhere because God's presence is everywhere. You're not allowed to worship another God Anywhere is what that commandment said. And so what we talked about last week as the theme of the first commandment was live to worship God alone. But the commandments, the word related to worship continues into our text today. And I hope you know there is this this clear link between the first commandment and the second commandment. The first one is about the focus of worship. The second is about the form of worship. In some sense, the first one is about the inward realities of worship, allegiance and loyalty that belongs to Yahweh alone, whereas the second word is about outward realities of how we worship Yahweh alone. But maybe more simply said, this is what you need to see this morning, is that the first word commands us who we are to worship, and the second word commands us how we are to worship. So last week it was live to worship God alone. This week the simple theme is live to worship God rightly. Live to worship God rightly. And students, you may have noticed as I read the text that the second commandment actually has two commands. There's one in verse 4, isn't there? And there's another in verse 5. So what I want to do in our two parts this morning is first pay attention to the commands in verses 4 and 5. And then the commentary in verse 5 and 6. Hoping that we might see... Uh, the supreme relevance that this word has to us in the 21st century, and also how this word has a shining star in the sky, it does indeed direct us to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the commands, notice again, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Ancient and Near Eastern cultures at this time were almost like idol factories. In the local district, they would be churning out carved images of wood or or stone of their local deities, gods and goddesses. And not infrequently, those carved images would be overlaid with silver and and gold. And they were not just always representations of that local god or goddess. Sometimes they were representations of a particular attribute or characteristic of that god or goddess. And God is telling his people that you don't get any such images In your worship, you're to be completely holy and separate in the worship that you bring me. And you see the comprehensive nature of the the warning against carved images. Look at the rest of verse 4. You shall not make any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. So kids, what God is saying here is, you shall not worship any image of anything made from anywhere. And if you want to put a little bit more of a finer point on it, he's saying, you shall not worship an image of me made out of anything 
from anywhere. And if you're a savvy enough reader of Scripture, you can look down again at verse 4, and you might see it doesn't have that clause, for me, of me. It doesn't say, does it? You shall not make yourself a carved image of me, or of any likeness of anything representing me. But I want you to see how even later on in the Bible, it makes it quite clear for us that this is exactly what God is in fact talking about. Because if he commanded no idolatry in the first commandment, and it's just a commandment against images of idols in the second commandment, he's just given us a redundant commandment that's completely unnecessary, hasn't he? But turn three books to your right. The book of Deuteronomy chapter 4 gives us a little bit more understanding of what God is saying here related to these images of him. In worship. If you don't know anything about Deuteronomy, it's kind of Moses' last sermon that he gives to God's people about their covenant relationship with the Lord. And the first half of chapter 4 is about their need for covenant obedience and faithfulness. And the second half is all about idolatry. And notice what God says through Moses in verse 15 through 18. And see if you can't notice the clear connection it makes to the second word there at Sinai in Exodus 20. So verse 15 says, Therefore, Watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on that day, the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you corruptly, by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of any male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. Do you see the reasoning in God's logic there? You didn't see any form of me at Sinai. So you don't get to make any images of me. And if that simple commentary wasn't enough, go back to our text. And you'll notice how even by the end of Exodus chapter 20, God is saying basically the same thing. Through Moses, so prone are his people, he knows, to break this second commandment. So just skip down to the end of the chapter, verse 22, 23. And this is God speaking only to Moses, not to people. They've basically sent Moses back up the mountain because they're too scared to listen to God's word. And the first thing, notice verse 22 and 23, God says, Thus you shall say, Moses, to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. So it's the language here of no form. You've seen that I've talked with you from heaven. Therefore you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, to represent me, to show me. Nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. So, we're right then, I believe, to take this as a prohibition against producing images of God. But it's not just about producing images, it's about prostrating before images. Look at the second command in verse 5. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. A bow down, students, is this word that in older books and older Bibles might be translated as prostrate yourself. It's a really intense verb physically. It pictures this idea of a defeated army coming to stand before the the conquering leader that has just defeated them. And what can they do but prostrate themselves, put their face in the dirt, so helpless are they before this leader. And that is the proper posture of worship so often in Scripture is prostration, isn't it? You know, putting your face in the dirt Because we are nothing but lowly, humble servants coming to the Lord, our Master. And he says, you don't get to produce images, nor do you get to prostrate yourself before images of me. You ought not to worship me in this way. And so you might think of those two commands and think, well, I'm pretty 
good off on this second command. You know, I don't produce any images. I don't prostrate myself before any images. Well, some of you might know how our Presbyterian practice in centuries past has made a lot about the second commandment and what it means for how God wants to be worshipped. And we continue to think that's right. You know, we read shorter catechism like we read earlier in our service about what we believe the second commandment to be teaching us. Now, if you had the occasion later on this afternoon to pull up our church's larger catechism, which is much longer in its answer on these things, what you would see in one of the questions is a larger catechism saying about our confession of faith is that the second commandment prohibits the making of any image of the triune God, any of the triune persons, either outwardly or inwardly. And it's that inward language about images of God that has tripped up a number of Christians and even Presbyterian pastors throughout the ages, wondering how it is that we can actually be prevented from making images of God in our mind, or how it is we could actually be wrong to make images of God in our mind. Well, consider it this way. Just a few years ago, one of the more notable Christian book publishers published one of those debate books that essentially takes a subject and gathers a team of scholars representing various perspectives on said subject, and then they just basically debate and argue in book form. So this publisher commissioned a book that was titled God in the Problem of Evil, Five Views. And one of the individuals that was espousing his position said he he couldn't stomach this reality that God is sovereign over all things while there's still evil in the world. And he said, I quote, Because I cannot imagine Jesus standing by and allowing genuine evils he could prevent, I cannot imagine God doing so. Now students, you don't have to be an expert in language to recognize imagine. Imagination comes from the same word family as image. And how often it is, isn't it, that we might make images in our mind of who God is according to our personal preference. That we have carved out in our mind an image of God after our own likeness. How often does that happen when you say, well, I imagine God is like a God who doesn't say anything a God who doesn't do anything that I disagree with. Or perhaps even sometimes it's true that it affects your life deeply spiritually. I can't imagine a God of this wrath and judgment would ever forgive me. But in reality, His grace and mercy knows no limit. Or perhaps I can't imagine that God is really that angry with my sin. I can't imagine that the father is genuinely displeased with the sin of his children, so what's the need to repent urgently? How often it is that Christians today may not be in the business of producing outward images of God, but we are actually in the business in a factory-like sense of producing inward images of God that don't represent him correctly. And what the text is telling us as it goes on is this second commandment isn't just a liturgical problem. It's a theological problem to produce these images of God. So let me give you two theological reasons why this is wrong before we move from the commands to the commentary. Number one is it violates God's spirituality. It violates God's spirituality. God is not a person who has a body. He doesn't have a body like man. He's pure spirit. So to to make an image of the triune God, Father, the Son, Spirit, in this way that we often tend to do in our culture today, it'd be like, think of an old pen pal relationship. You know, you you are exchanging letters, communication written. 
with a particular person, but you maybe never saw an actual picture of that person, and maybe one day you said, I'm going to come along, I'm going to paint a picture of what... Now, given all the things that we've exchanged in our pen pal relationship, I'm going to make a picture of what that person actually looks like. And you know, whatever you put down as a portrait won't come anywhere close to the reality. And the same thing happens when it comes to making images of God, worshiping images of God. There's nothing that you could make that comes anywhere close to the reality of God's spirituality, but it's not just his spirituality it violates, it's also God's sovereignty. Because I hope you know that God, for thousands of years now, has been in the business of making images of himself. He's done it billions and billions of times, hasn't he? Well, kids, how has he done it? You remember what he said in Genesis chapter 1, let us make man after our image. And he retains the copyright on his image. That's why he alone gets to produce an image of him in human beings. And you might know how quickly Israel forsook this commandment given to them at Sinai. You know, it's just four to six weeks later that you get to Exodus 32. Moses has been up on the mountain for so long, they're impatient for him to come down. And so they command Aaron in verse 1 of Exodus 32. Aaron, get up. Make us God. Aaron says, okay, give me all your gold. He throws it into the fire. It all melts down. He produces this golden calf. And what does he say? But behold, Israel, your God who brought you out of Egypt. They wanted a God that they could control. A God that they could see. A God that they could move about wherever they wanted to go and worship him however they wanted to. When the commands tell us, no producing images, no prostrating before images. And now you see at the end of verse 5 through 6, the commentary about these commands. And I'm sure many of you parents will have a genuine sympathy with what God is getting ready to do with his child Israel at this time. You know, I'm sure even a number of you, maybe this week, you, you gave a command, instruction, a teaching to your child. And instead of him or her responding, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, it was little more than a one-word question of, why? And it's as though God knows that his people often want reasons for the rules. You know, even if you just glance down at all Ten Commandments, I hope you've noticed before how it's the second and the fourth commandment that get lots of commentary. It's as though God knows these are the ones that we will tend to debate most, divide over most. And the commentary about the commands begins with God's character. Look at verse 5 as it continues. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now kids, ask yourself this question. Is jealousy a good thing or a bad thing? Now our culture today would say it's a bad thing. Which would mean God has just given to himself something that is wrong. But we know that can't be true. A part of the problem is, isn't it, that our culture and context today has collapsed jealousy into envy. Where envy is the sinful desiring for something that doesn't belong to you. Whereas properly understood, jealousy is rightfully desiring what belongs to you. More often than not in the Old Testament, particularly this language of God's jealousy is used with this marriage metaphor about his relationship with his people. And that's true, isn't it? That a husband is right to be jealous over his wife's faithfulness to him. Or a husband is right to be jealous that her husband is 
attention, his affection belongs to her alone. And this is exactly what God is saying. Is he's jealous for his glory. He's jealous for his worship. He's jealous for his honor. All attention, all adoration, all affection. That belongs to God alone. So you don't give it to this little carved image. This imperfect representation. Something that seems like it can contain an infinite God. But what God's jealousy reminds us. It's just how much God's love is for his people. Because students, what's the antonym to jealousy? What's the opposite of jealousy? A good word would be indifference. I want you to know that God is never indifferent towards his people. That there is this white hot burning love that he has for his people. That kind of zeal, that kind of jealousy that Jesus Christ had when he cleansed out the temple. In the gospel passages is the same jealousy that Jesus Christ has when he's cleansing your heart of its sin, of its idolatry. As a, a loving, patient, long-suffering husband follows after a wayward wife, so has God followed after his wayward people and sending his son Jesus Christ, the fullness of his jealous love that he might die in their place, taking their sin in the greatest act of love. So what God is telling us here and telling us that he is jealous is likening false worship to nothing other than spiritual adultery. It's loving other lovers, not Yahweh alone. And what he gives us now in verse 5 at the end through verse 6 are two consequences. Okay, God is jealous, that's the characteristic. Now, consequences. Notice verse 6, the consequence of hate. I'm sorry, the end of verse 5, the consequence of hate. He says, I am the Lord your God and I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Uh, You might know maybe in your own life how, how this consequence has caused confusion among no small number of Christians. Does it seem that God is teaching generational curses, or as some denominations have said most recently in the last hundred years, something like generational hexes or demonic oppression? Uh, What you need to know, this, this truth is integral to God's character in a pivotal passage that will come later on in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, when God again reveals his name to his people. The same consequence is uttered. Shows up in Numbers, shows up in Jeremiah. Uh, But it seems like in the course of Israel's life and history, uh, they took this consequence in Exodus chapter 20 to essentially teach that God in his wrath will punish a righteous child for unrighteous parents, unrighteous grandparents, or unrighteous great-grandparents. And that view was so prevalent that by the time Ezekiel, the prophet, shows up, God gives him a very long word to correct that error. It's actually a word we're going to read in its fullness tonight in evening worship in chapter 18. But just listen to one verse that God says related to the consequence of hate. Verse 20 of Ezekiel 18 says, The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son, the righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So that's why when you flip back to Exodus 20, you need to underline that very last phrase in verse 5. This is a consequence that belongs to those who hate me. This is not talking about righteous people suffering unrighteously because of their former generation's sin. This is talking about a generation continuing in the hate that marked their parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents. And the contrast is quite 
noticeable, isn't it, when you see the consequence of love? Verse 6, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The language there are thousands. It's even unto a thousand generations. So where God's wrath may run out after three or four generations, God's love never runs out towards his own. You know, I've often wondered, why is it that God uses the language here of three and four generations? I think it's because certainly in that ancient culture, it was quite common, wasn't it, for you to be raised into some sort of home where you would see your father, grandfather, great-grandfather, that even the lives of these wicked people, the iniquity is being visited on their offspring progeny that continues to hate God as though God is giving them a chance to repent of their sin. But isn't it a tender mercy of God to know that long after you and I expire, should the Lord tarry, His covenant love won't expire towards those who love Him and keep His commandments. Kids, God's covenant love is this ocean that will never run dry. A thousand generations language for an everlasting, eternal, steadfast love. So consider the consequences then in light of the commands. And examine yourself even this morning. Do you know that Producing images of God and prostrating yourselves before images of God is nothing less than God says in this passage to hatred of Him. But worshiping Him rightly is loving Him and keeping His commandments. The way in which, in part, we enjoy His covenant love and steadfast grace forever. Of the many men that participated in the Westminster Assembly back in the 1640s that gave us our church's confession and catechisms. One that's always stood out to me is a man named Jeremiah Burroughs. He was a well-known pastor and preacher in his time. One of his stops in ministry, he was the pastor of the London church at Stepney, which at the time was one of the two largest churches in all of England's largest city. And while he was at Stepney, he tended to enjoy preaching sermons very early in the morning. So early, in fact, that people came to call him the morning star of Stepney. And a year after he died, his friends produced a book that he had written called Gospel Worship. It's a book that the late R.C. Sproul said was one of the most important books that he had ever read. And it really is little more than a 300-page meditation on what Burroughs calls the right sanctifying of God's name. It's little more than a 300-page meditation on what it means to live to worship God rightly. We, of course, don't have time, do we, today for a 300-page meditation on what it means to worship God rightly. But let me give you just a two-simple-point meditation as we begin to close that you might see this truth. Number one, God places supreme importance on how He is worshipped. God places supreme importance on how He is worshipped. Yeah, I suppose for some of you even in the room today, it could be a life-changing question to ask yourself this afternoon. Maybe even have tattooed upon your heart as you think about glorifying the Lord is how does God want to be worshipped? How does God command us to worship Him? You know, I had a friend once whose father retired after many decades of service in the insurance industry. And I guess he was so integral to this company that the company higher-ups decided to throw him this uh, relatively... uh, well-furnished retirement party with all this food and with all this music that came a surprise to his father. 
uh, he remarked that, you know, I don't think they knew dad too well. He didn't like any of the food that they had catered. He couldn't stand any of the music that they had the band playing that day. And do you ever wonder if we Christians and churches do something similar when it comes to worshiping God? He didn't ask you to do any of that. That's not what he has commanded or enjoys. You ever ask what ways in which we might be falling short even here in our local church of God's second word and how he wants to be worshipped? God cares about how he worships clearly in the Old Testament and he cares about how he worships clearly in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, doesn't it, at the very end, let us offer acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. The second word shows us that God places supreme importance on how he is worshipped. And number two, finally, God places supreme importance on his word. On his word. Have you ever thought about this before? When you get to the second commandment. Just as... Almost simultaneously, this is happening. God is telling his people, you don't get to carve anything. He was in the business of carving something. His word on stone tablets. You didn't see any form at Sinai, children. But you did hear me. Signaling for them that true Christianity is a religion. Isn't it about the ear, not the eye? It's... By hearing God's word, faith comes into us. We walk by faith, not by sight. That's why the worship that God desires is always saturated with the centrality and priority of God's word. We sing it, we pray it, we read it, we preach it, we see it, don't we? In the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And whenever you come to one of the ten words, recognize that the Spirit means to take one of these commandments and treat it like as a scalpel on your soul. You might just begin to prick, cut, and prod those places where you are falling short of God's law. Because you know, don't you? You have broken this commandment. Perhaps in ways you may not have realized before today, you are breaking this commandment. But the good news is that there still is hope for lawbreakers like you and me. And it's because God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, His perfect image, to save sinners like you and me who have distorted that image in which we were created. John chapter 14, verse 9, finds Jesus telling his disciples, If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Paul preaches in Colossians chapter 1 that Christ is the image of the invisible God. The author to the Hebrews declares in chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of his glory. And so Jesus, who is the true image bearer of God, Jesus is the true picture of God, comes, doesn't he? To take the curse of the law in our place. That he might renew his image in us. By his spirit writing even this second word on our hearts. So that we can indeed live to worship God rightly. Let's pray together. Our Father we ask that you would forgive us. In our failings when it comes to worshiping you. We know our offerings are far too often. Fraught with their own sin. Fraught with their own personal preferences. 
and not given in true submission to your word. And so we pray that you would help us by your spirit to always live to worship you alone, to live to worship you rightly, to fill our lives with your word that you might be worshipped as you desire. And we pray all of these things for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask them in his name. Amen. Let us stand together as we sing our hymn of response. An old hymn we're singing to a new tune, one we introduced last week. A hymn that I trust indeed encourages your heart when you hear God's law. So let us sing together once again, The law of God is good and wise to the tune of Before the Throne of God Above. You may be seated. Uh, we want to hear the Lord now welcome us to his table as he invites us to the Lord's Supper, as he does every Lord's Day morning here at Redeemer, and in a way that we don't often remember. Now, this is a meal that communicates to us that our God is a jealous God. You know, you can write this down and meditate on it later this afternoon. It'd be a good Lord's Day activity, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 22, as a passage where Paul is talking about eating of foods and drinking of drink offered to idols. And kind of in the middle of that discourse, he talks about the Lord's Supper. And he says, when we come to the Lord's Supper, unworthily, if we come with impurity, do you not know that we are provoking the Lord's jealousy here at this table? 
Because this is a table that communicates to us God's covenant love. And so it requires covenant obedience if you're to come as God's covenant people. And God isn't he so steadfast in his covenant love towards us that he knows we often want to see something in our life. That yes, faith is a hearing God's word, the preaching of it. But so often we want to be able to touch and we want to be able to taste. We want to be able to hold something of God's grace and God in his kindness and mercy has given us something we can see, something we can taste, something we can touch here in the Lord's Supper. That we might know just how jealous he is for his people. So jealous that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue them and redeem them, to bear the curse of the law in their place as he hung on that cursed tree of Calvary. It was there, of course, that his body was broken. And we remember that with the bread and his blood was shed, which we remember with the cup as well. And this is how God can bring full forgiveness and everlasting life to lawbreakers like you and me. So some of you belongs to God's people if you're in here today and wouldn't say you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know that we're entirely grateful that you're with us today and hope you've heard something of the the true mercy and love that the Lord offers to people like you and me who have sinned. But the Bible says if you were to come forward in the next few minutes and eat and drink of these elements, you'd be eating and drinking judgment into your heart. So we just encourage you to remain in your seat. As people might be getting up around you, you can use those moments to meditate on anything that you've heard this morning. But if you are repenting of your sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you've been baptized into a gospel-preaching church, and you're not under its discipline, the Lord gladly invites you to come to this table, that by faith you might feast upon Jesus Christ's blessings and benefits. And God says you must come with a heart of self-examination, that you not eat and drink unworthily. And so as people are going to be getting up, as you're waiting to be dismissed, we do encourage you to take those moments before you can come forward to examine your heart before the Lord of its repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. If your spouse is next to you, your children next to you, you can turn that into a family prayer, which is always a wonderful thing. If you might be seated next to a a brother and sister in Christ, you can use it as a time to pray together and prepare your hearts, for we do come as God's people this morning. We do come with special joy also as it's the first time that Lily and Jackson Landers are coming forward for communion as they have been received as full members here at Redeemer. And they partake of the Lord's body and blood by faith for the first time this morning. And so let us come with hearts of celebration even in the midst of our examination. Let's pray together. Holy God, our Father, we thank you for your word and continue to speak to our heart to refresh and renew our spirit and our mind to worship you. We praise you that you are indeed a jealous and a holy God. You are omnipresent. You are a covenant-keeping God that we worship you and with spirit and in our heart that we continue to come before you and to remember you, your steadfast love showing to us this day that we are your children, your forgiven people, have been invited to the table to remember your love through our Lord Jesus Christ, his body broken, his bloodshed, so that we may feed on your grace. We ask Holy Spirit, come to us to be with us and sanctify the church as we continue uh, to share the word of God uh, to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Our Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took a bread. After giving thanks to God, he broke it and said, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. For as often as it is bread, drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Elders will be serving the communion shortly, and you will be released by household and coming forward to receive the elements at the front. When you come to the table, please hold your hands open so we can serve you the bread. Always be reminded, a grape juice is light in color and the wine is dark. Elders now, please come forward. 